morning we're in Acts chapter 6, and it's a real turning point in our story of the early church. As you've been tracking with us, hopefully, for the last several weeks, we've been working through the book of Acts, and we're studying the development and the launching, the movement of the early church. And we've entitled the entire series, Unstoppable Forward Momentum. When the Holy Spirit gets involved in the lives of believers, it's literally unstoppable what God can do. And that's what we're learning in Acts. And here in Acts chapter 6, we're going to discover that this is a turning point in the early church. One particular scholar says that this is probably one of the most historically important sections of Acts because what happens in this section that we're going to look at this morning is going to literally launch the church beyond its little location in Jerusalem, this, this, this corner of the world, this tiny little city, and it's going to launch people and it's going to launch the movement and the ministry now all throughout the cities around the Mediterranean world. So let's listen in as we hear Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7 read about a tiny, small, seemingly insignificant little situation that happens in the early church and how, this, how they solved a small problem has far-reaching impact throughout the Mediterranean world. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right of us to neglect the ministry of the word in order uh, to serve tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among yourselves who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them, and then we will give our attention to prayer and the service of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Paramenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, who was a proselyte or a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So in our passage this morning, what we discover is that a problem arose. Now, that's probably pretty true for most churches that are rapidly growing. I mean, churches that are growing and adding numbers quickly, the numbers of people coming and the needs coming are far greater than their ability to manage. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, they're just not ready. They're not prepared for this kind of growth. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to manage the people that they have because they weren't aware of the fact that so many people would respond to the gospel. So the needs were so great, they had to create a plan to meet the needs. But hidden within this text is this point. A tiny, potentially, or or seemingly insignificant act as serving tables to the neglected members of the church turn out to have a lasting impact Who would have ever thought that serving tables, that just caring for people's needs, would create leadership in the church and keep the church relevant? A healthy church has two things. Growing leaders 
and it stays relevant, it's culture. And that comes out of this ability of the early church to meet a need and develop these leaders and stay relevant. Let me give you a real-life story. Dr. Ron Boyd McMillan is a dear friend of mine, and he's a chief strategist for Open Doors Ministries that tracks the persecuted churches around the world. They know where every persecuted church is and all the different countries where there's persecution for Christians, where they're being imprisoned or whether they're being poorly treated, and they provide services and justice, prayer, encouragement. They provide the word. And so Dr. Ron Boyd McMillan has literally traveled the world in the last 27 years, and he's seen it all. And he has brought back these stories of the underground. And I want you to hear one particular story about this couple in the UK that do a tiny, insignificant ad that has a lasting impact in another continent. So let's watch this little video. It doesn't matter how small your work is or whether you see fruit or not. You can leave it in the hands of God if you'll bring some good out of it. Sometimes we're just not meant to see the good we do. We just have to do it, no matter how simple, no matter how humdrum, and leave it to God. And we can be sure in his hands he'll multiply it. It's kind of like a, a butterfly effect. The butterfly beats its wings in Beijing and revolutions occur continents away. That's how it is in God's kingdom. There's another story I heard in the aftermath of the Beijing Olympics. A house church leader was warned that he should not hold his house church over the time of the Olympics. He defied them, he defied the authorities, he went ahead with his church. And one day he was arrested and he was taken away to a province far away. He was put into a cell and two policemen beat him almost to death. And he woke up and he found himself in a large white room. And he thought, oh, I've died and gone to heaven. But then he noticed at the bottom of his bed were the two policemen that had beaten him. And he thought, well, no, I can't be in heaven. And yet, to his surprise, they began to apologize to him. Sorry that we did that to you. We do apologize. And he said, well, why are you apologizing to me? They said, better ask him. And this man came into the room, man in his 50s, and he introduced himself. He said, I'm the inspector of prisons for this province. I heard what was happening to you, and I've stopped it, and I want to apologize to you. Christians are okay with me. The house church leader was really surprised at this, and he managed to say, well, why do you say that? Why did you intervene on my behalf? And he said, well, years ago, many, many years ago, I was visiting the UK on a study program. And he said, nobody really wanted to know me. I was very lonely. One day, he decided to go to church. He wanted to see the inside of a church and see what Christians did and said. So he went along, and a very elderly couple there invited him out for dinner. And so he went along, and each time he came to the church, they had him out to their house and they fed him a beautiful meal and he said they treated me like a king he said they prayed for me they loved me they gave me a bible he said i'm not a christian but he said they were so kind and they were so gracious that i was very impressed and he said although i don't believe he said i realize that if christians are like that old couple 
What has China to fear? What has China to fear from people like that? This Beijing House Church leader was telling me about it, and he said, you know, it gives me such a perspective on God, because this man intervened to save me, even though it was the result of a simple act of hospitality shown by a Christian couple in Manchester years ago in another time on another continent, and yet it saved me from certain death by beating. A simple act of hospitality shown to a stranger, and yet it saves the life of a Christian leader years after those who sh showed the act of hospitality were long gone. Anything we do, no matter how small, how simple, can have a major effect because it's offered into the hands of God, and there it gets multiplied to become a far greater blessing than we can ever know. So what does China have to fear if that's what Christians are like? So in the text here in Acts chapter 6, we have to understand the context. We have to understand that all of Jerusalem knew what was going on here. That a church was being developed. People were coming to Christ. People were attending this, these synagogues, these places of meetings, and they were hearing about Christ. And they were watching to see what kind of of people these were. Were these people we could trust? Were these people that were okay to us? Were these people going to harm us? Are these people going to change us in some way that we don't want? And what we discover is this tiny act of caring for widows and their families and tending to their needs had a far-reaching impact because the individuals chosen to actually do this service turn out to be great leaders for the church. And so what we see is a couple things going on. We see the fact that the watching world sees what's happening inside the church, how it takes care of itself, how healthy is it, how do they care for one another. The church has an opportunity to be a witness in the world as it becomes the church, as it works together, as it relates to itself with one another, as, as it member to member. And we have the opportunity to be that witness to the world. And so what we do here matters to the world. Does that make sense? But what's going on here in the greater context is how the church is growing. It's growing in a healthy way through, through two ways. Through growing leadership and being relevant. And I want to look at that with you this morning. And so first of all, back to our context, there was an increasing number of complaints that arose apart from the Hellenistic, it says, Jews against the native Hebrew-speaking Jews. So right away we discovered that the early church had a problem. They were segregated. Major problem in the church. Major problem in the church today as well. There's a segregation based upon language and location and culture. The Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking Jews that had come to Christ, moved out of Jerusalem into other areas called Diaspora, which are different locations and cities outside of the main city of Jerusalem. And now they've come back into Jerusalem. They're Greek-speaking. They have adopted Greek culture, but they're Jewish believers now in Christ. And now they're trying to mix with these Hebrew-speaking and Aramaic-speaking Jews that live in Jerusalem. They have a totally different culture. They speak Aramaic, not Greek. 
So they've been segregated now by synagogues because there's two different languages, same God, two different languages, same belief, but two different cultures. And all of a sudden, what they realize is these Greek-speaking synagogues were not being cared for as the Hebrews were. They were being neglected. And what it says here in the text, it says that the complaint came that their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. Now, the New American Standard says the serving of food, but really that's not right. The translation should actually be diakonia, the service of ministry. And the service of ministry is not only food, but it is also alms, which is money. It's finances, it's resources. Remember, don't forget, we've already studied the church as a giving church. We've already know that one of the characteristics of the early church is it poured out its resources to all. That everybody was willing to release what they had for others that were in need. That was the characteristic of the early church. And what we discover here is it wasn't being evenly distributed. The money and the food. And these women and their families were being overlooked. And so what happens here in the context is that apostles, the leaders of the church, decide, well, we're not going to do that work because we've been called, set apart for prayer and the preaching of the word. We don't want to neglect our service, leading the church, growing the church, expanding the church, building the vision of the church, moving it forward. We don't want to neglect what God has called us to do. And so... These apostles went to the congregation of disciples. They went to the synagogues. They went in and they said, rise up, raise up seven men, godly men, full of wisdom and the Holy Spirit to do the service, to do this work. And so we'll basically have a second tier level of leadership in the church. We'll continue to do what we're doing and now we'll be able to take care of that need. And in the small act, something amazing happens. Leadership is developed in the church. But notice how it's developed. This is really important. Notice the process. It wasn't just that somebody stood up and said, well, fine, I'll do it. And and off they went and they were this big grand, grand leader in the church. Notice what happens. The congregation came together. They, they evaluated. It says select. The word select literally means to, to evaluate, to, to, uh, to understand someone's character, moral development, and maturity, and, and to take a look at them and, and evaluate and, and see what kind of person they are, pray over them, find that they are both full of the Spirit and full of God's Word. So these are people that rely on the Holy Spirit, but also rely on God's word for their life. These are people that go to the word. These are people throughout their lives, during their day, will consult God's word about their life. What does God's word have to say about that? But we also will pause and stop and ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide. These were were the kinds of individuals that the congregation chose, brought them before the apostles. They laid hands on them, which was a ceremony that was very typical, very, Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin did the very same thing as new priests and leaders came into their synagogues. They would lay hands on them and through a ceremony give them authority over work or ministry. And so these apostles laid hands on them, put them in charge of this task so that they would now be able to continue their ministry, that is the apostles, of devoting themselves, it says, to prayer and the ministry of the word. It found approval, and they chose these men. Two of these men, and here's the key. 
here's what's going on here. Notice, Stephen and Philip. We don't know a lot about all the rest of these guys, but we know something about Stephen and Philip because if you have your Bible in front of you, if you take a look at chapter 6, verse 8, 6, 8, next week we're going to look at a guy named Stephen. He's one of these servants that's now being given a responsibility in the church to manage the funds, manage the resources and the food for the individuals, for all the families and this growing population. It wasn't a small task. You know, I've always had this mindset that this is just, you know, they have there's little tables like in an auditorium and and they serve food and all the people come and they just bring food out. And that's that's been my mindset of this passage and now I see it much bigger that these were people trying to administrate and manage a large number of people and synagogues and trying to organize the fund the giving of funds and the giving of food and the resources that were needed and in recruiting people to get involved and, and managing all of this. This is a big task. Well, one of the individuals in verse 8 is Stephen, and guess what Stephen becomes? He becomes a prophetic leader of the church and becomes the first martyr because he stands up and gives the longest sermon ever recorded in the New Testament in Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7, and Stephen loses his life. They stone him. They take his life. And so we discover that Stephen, from a point of just simply being a, a servant over tables, becomes this powerful leader in the church. And then if we, if we keep reading, if we go over to Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we discover that Philip is now called upon. Remember this menial task, this tiny task over here in the corner of Jerusalem? He now has been given the responsibility to bring the gospel into a whole new area. And Philip goes to Caesarea and opens up the Greek world, opens up the gospel, and opens up the opportunity for Greeks to hear the gospel. How does this happen? How does this take place in the context of the church? You know, people have been studying the church for decades. They're always looking for, okay, what's the right model for the church? I mean, which one should we, is it Willow Creek? Is it the five Gs? Willow Creek has these five Gs that they follow, grace, Growth, groups, gifts, good stewardship. I love that. He's got good stewardship, which is giving. As one of the five Gs, the core values of our church, Willow Creek in Chicago, Bill Hybels. Well, Rick Warren in Saddleback down in Orange County, that's now gone all over, same idea, but he applies the five. When we first arrived, it was the five M's. And it was magnification, membership, maturity, ministry, and mission. And these were the, the five areas of your life. The magnification, the glory of God is your first priority, to worship the Lord. To become a member of the congregation, a member of faith. To come in and receive Christ, and then to begin growing and maturing in your faith. And then to find your place of ministry through the development of your spiritual gifts. And then finally, to be sent out on mission in some way. And that's the kind of the course of a person's life at Willow Creek. I could saddle back. I have a dear friend, one of my best friends, J.P. Jones, who's down at Crossline, and he's developed his own model. And his model is get in, get healthy, get strong, and get going. He's missing his five, fifth get. I told him that. You're missing your fifth get. What's your fifth get? Well, maybe it's get lost. I don't know, but I don't think that one works. Uh, but it's get in. Get into the church, and then it's get healthy. Get healthy in relationships. Get healthy yourself. And then get strong 
and grow in your faith and then get going. Get going out into the world in mission. And, and every church has got their model. There's a model right here. It's in Acts chapter 6. Here's the model of this early church. The apostles, the leaders, they're, they're, they're unencumbered by, um, by all the needs of the church because they're focused on their particular job, what God has called them to do. And they see what needs to be done. They hear from the church what the needs are. The need arises. The community of disciples decide a plan. Let's raise up some new servants. Deacons or diakonos. The deacon of the church is the server of the church, which is us. We are all deacons. We're deacons of the church. That's where the word service comes from. And then it says that uh, the servants are chosen, and then the leaders grow. The leadership base grows because each of these individuals then moves on to a greater level of leadership in the church. And then that cycle repeats itself, and the church just keeps growing, and guess what it's doing? It's building a new layer of leadership every time there's a need. It's not the same people doing all the work. It's not all the pastors doing that. It's the church responding to the needs of the church that develops the new leadership of the church, and these individuals then move beyond that into greater and greater responsibility. And, and several of the commentators, by the way, point out the fact that don't miss this, that the serving of food and the and giving of alms and the, and the distribution of finances is, is equally as important as prayer and the preaching of God's word. They're on equal playing fields. It's not like this one's better than this one. These are spiritually connected because we see how leadership is developed from serving. We are all to be servant leaders. Jesus even said that. He came to serve, not to be served. And his servant role, he was demonstrating this is the first act of a leader. This is how you become a leader. This is how you lead people. This is how you step into a position where you're able to lead others by serving. And so we see this model here in Acts chapter 6. And this is the very model of the early church. It, it reminds me of Exodus chapter 18. And if you remember the story in Exodus chapter 18, I'll just tell it to you briefly. Um, Moses is very busy. And Moses now has all these people under his command. And it says uh, that Moses sat as judge of the people, and the people stood about Moses from morning until evening. And, and so morning till evening, Moses would get up, and people would come to him, and he'd have to judge. He'd have to give out information. He'd have to judge and, and manage and, and make decisions and, and counsel and do all the work for the people. And Moses was the only one doing it. But guess who shows up? Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro looks at him and says, can I give you a piece of advice? Can I help you out? Why do you alone sit and judge all the people and stand about you from morning until evening? Moses says, because the people come to me and they inquire to go of God. Well, of course he does. Because people ask me to do it, so I'll just do it. I mean, that's such a natural response. Well, somebody's got to do it. I guess I'll do it because they asked me, so I'll just keep doing it. Moses' father-in-law says, the thing you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who you are ministering to. So therefore, he comes up with a plan. I give you counsel. God be with you. You be the people's representative. Bring the disputes before God. You teach them the statues. You make them know the way. But then you select out of all the people, able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, 
who shall place these over them as leaders, thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Let it be that every major dispute that will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And guess what? Leadership is born. The development of any movement happens as a result of leadership development. The leader is such an important role that without the leader, the organization is sunk. This story comes out of extreme ownership. A couple uh, Navy SEALs write a book about one of the um, major events, a crisis in Iraq. And in this book, uh, Extreme Ownership, they tell the story. Jocko Wilkins and Leif Babin tell the story about how leaders are born and how leaders work with their teams to be successful. And it all starts with an extreme ownership. The leader must own what they're doing with full knowledge and will, with, with everything they've got. They're fully in. The only way to succeed is when you fully own what you have in front of you. You have to live it. You got to own it. You got to believe in it. You got to fight for it. You have to be that one. And what happens is you now recruit a team. So what they do is they study these teams in Coronado, California at Bud's Training, um, Basic Underwater Demolition Training. And there are seven boat crews. And so they tell the story of these seven boat crews and these, these teams that have been placed under leaders. And boat number six comes in last. And they're watching this thing happen time and time again. And the guy's going to lose his job. He's going to be fired. He's out. He's out of the program if he can't get his team to start cooperating and working. So one of the, over, one of the commanders decides, let's change up the teams. Excuse me. Let's not change the teams. Let's move the leaders out of their boat and put them with a different team. Let's keep the teams the same, but move the leaders. And guess what happens? Team six is now on top. With a different leader, same team, that team is now on top. Leadership is so important. And then these guys go on to basically say that leadership is the single greatest factor in any, any ministry and any team performance. Any team performance. It comes down to leadership. I was listening to a podcast from Dr. Henry Cloud, who is a psychologist, one of the sharpest guys I've ever met. And he does business consulting. So he walks into boardrooms, and he works with large corporations with his psychological background and his consulting background and consults them. And he works with people. And what he realizes is that organizations typically develop around the leader. So whatever the leader's like, their personality, that's what the organization looks like. And what that organization needs to learn how to do is multiply its leadership or it will sink. He says, now I apply that to the church. What I find is that's probably the smallest budget in the church is leadership development. And what I found in corporate America is when leader, when corporate America, when, when corporations invest in leadership development, their productivity goes up 20%, 30%. It's off the charts. It's a natural correlation, correlation between putting money in leadership development and seeing productivity grow. 
And what we see here in this passage is if they had failed to do that, and if the apostle had done all the work, and they said, well, we'll just do that, it would have sunk the whole movement. Leadership is so important to the church. And the way in which I see in this passage leadership being developed is by identifying the need, praying over that need, selecting individuals, godly people that desire to serve, and then launching them into this opportunity and then see and watch as they develop into leaders in the church. And I think that's as simple as it gets. And the question is, where do we find ourselves in that? I mean, because this passage is not just a history lesson. This is a passage that is challenging you and I to take ownership of the church, to become part of the congregation of disciples where we're going to begin choosing and stepping up and stepping out in areas of ministry. And every week we've been providing opportunity for you to hear about what's going on beyond the walls of the church. In the inner city, in urban Los Angeles, around the world. The ministries in Rwanda, the Martin Home, Reignite Hope, whether it's Young Life or FCA or LA Mission or all the other ministries that we're connected to, many ministries, we're seeing people rise up to take ownership. That's leadership development. Dr. Howard Hendricks is one of my favorite seminary professors uh, from... Uh, Dallas Seminary, I used to listen to all of his messages, and he has this amazing message called the mark of the man. It's really the mark of the leader. It's the mark of a sure man. It's an hour and ten minutes long. So he gathered these crew leaders together back in the late 70s, early 80s, and for an hour and ten minutes, he taught them the 11 qualities of a leader. And it, I, I listened to it this last Friday, and I transcribed a lot of it and took a couple hours to hear it. And it reminded me again of kind of my early days of stepping in and jumping into ministry as a result of a need. Well, we need somebody for this. Well, we need somebody for that. Well, this need is not, this need's going on that. And, and, and I stepped in, as many others did, and now here I find myself 30 years down the road in a different role, but no, there's, it's not like this role's better or bigger than this role. It's just that this one led here. But you've got to start there and get into leadership through servanthood. And what Dr. Howard Hendricks says is that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, it says that it's a good thing that we aspire to be a leader. Paul says, it's good that we aspire to it. We should all aspire to it. And then he lists out all these exactant, what he calls exactant responsibilities of being a leader. And he lists all of these, these standards that are really, really high. And, and someone asked him, why? Why are these standards so high? And then he quotes Eugene O'Neill. In one of his plays, he has a character in one of his plays say these words. It says, you, not, you cannot build a marble temple out of a mixture of mud and manure. That the only way to build a quality temple is to use quality products. And that's true for the church. That's you and I growing in our faith, stepping into an opportunity to serve, and then finding ourselves in greater and greater responsibility. 
and the church develops another level of leadership and the church just continues to expand and so we just continue to do that over and over and over again my desire is that we would we would execute that model at the river and i'm hoping this next year to have some opportunities to gather with people that want to become leaders that want to start as servants to become leaders and to train them and do that on a quarterly basis and we're going to start that this next year but i find something else in this this passage here. And in Acts chapter 6, what I discover is what a couple commentators say. And it's this. You've got to stay relevant. And what we find in here is if they had squashed the idea of individuals from the congregation stepping into roles of servanthood, becoming leaders, it would have ruined the whole thing. It would have literally squashed the organization. The movement would have been done because they would have held it too tightly. One of the problems in the church today is that it's held by a few. And what the church needs to see is it's unleashed by the Holy Spirit so that the masses of people in the church can do the work of ministry. That's what has to happen. And until that happens, the movement of the church will just kind of steadily just kind of try to survive. And what two commentators say is that in this model what we discover is a whole new organizational structure. That they gained a new style of structure. That they didn't say, well, we've never done it this way before. We got a hold to the past. We've only done it this way, and we can't do it any other way. We're in charge. You need to follow our leadership. What I find in the early churches, they, were, they stayed relevant to a growing need, growing time. So there were needs. The culture was changing. The people, different people were coming in, and it needed a different structure. And what it teaches me is that in order for a church to be healthy, it not only does it need to develop leaders, it needs to stay relevant. It has to adapt to an ever-changing culture. And so what I find in this passage is what F.F. Bruce says, it, it stimulated the church to originate a better structure. So the question is, what's the better structure of tomorrow? I don't know, but I bet you know. What's the better structure of the church of tomorrow? It's changing, let me tell you. It's a totally different church. And what I've discovered is that the river, we have kind of two different cultures going on. We've got a beach culture, and we've got a Norris culture, and we could do different things here than we can do down at the beach. And it's a different mindset and a different mentality when people come down the beach and hang out and they're watching the lifeguards rescue people and surfers and, you know, closeouts and all sorts of stuff going on. Here, we're a little more focused. There's more opportunity for worship and, and response. And, and we're, there's, it's just different. It's not bad or good. It's just different. We're reaching a different segment of our society, of our culture, right? That's what we're doing. Guess what? There's a whole nother one. There's a whole nother way to do ministry. There's a whole nother place. It's the third place and the fourth place. I really believe staying relevant means listening to the Holy Spirit, stepping out and believing that God is going to help us reach the next generation or, or, or even more segments of our community or society. And so I'm believing God for another location. I really am. I believe I know. I don't know where it is but I think I kind of know where it is. I think it's the Redonda Riviera. I really do. 
I think the Redondo Beach area and the, and the beach community needs a place within where people hang out and have dinner and socialize. We need a church there. Imagine even a Saturday night church where people can come in before dinner and hear the message in a totally different way, unleashing new leaders, new teachers, new worship leaders, maybe more of a discussion-oriented service with unleashed or un, kind of a unleashed uh, worship, maybe a guy on a guitar or a gal on a guitar or something like that. I don't know. But maybe it can be totally different. I mean, it could be radically different. And all of a sudden, new people start coming in. And guess what happens? The church starts growing. The church starts growing. Because we're, rele- we're hearing the Holy Spirit, and we're not locked into a particular way, but we're open. And I'm believing God for that. I think there's a new place for us. Young families that need child care, that want to go to the beach but can't because they're kids. They want to stay in the beach community. Maybe they want a Saturday night service. Maybe they want a Sunday morning service. I don't know. Maybe if it's large enough, we can move our offices out of Lamita and put our, our staff in the same location and use the same location for where our church is. And then we start using it for Bible studies and prayer meetings. And the women and the men meet there. And every night of the week, there's something going on. The doors are open. Maybe there's coffee and there's baked goods. Maybe there's some farm tables. And people can just come in. I mean, could you imagine we actually intersecting with culture and community? Really being where people live, bringing ourselves, our lives into the community in a real way and providing hope and encouragement and God's word in a relevant way, right smack dab in the middle of the growing segment of our own community, the beach cities. It's crazy. I don't know. Where do these thoughts come from? Probably from the Holy Spirit. But I, I can, I'm already envisioning myself there with, with a cup of decaf. I'm on decaf now. And my computer open and reading email, doing a little study. Somebody walks in. Somebody else sits there. Somebody else walks in. There's some staff or some, some of our volunteers, some of our small group leaders. I mean, this is just, is this crazy? Is this crazy or what? But this is the kind of church that is being unleashed in Acts 6. I'm convinced of it. This is the church with looser organizational structure focused on the meeting the needs of a growing church. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit gets involved and the church just grows. So I don't know where you're at, but I'm really excited. I'm really excited about the future of the river. I'm excited about the new level of leadership. And it's really up to you. And and by the way, before I finish this message, the underlying reason why the church was able to do this is because they were a generous church. Look back in the text. They were offering the gifts of the church to those in need. Well, if people were stingy and held them for themselves, it wouldn't happen. If we do not step up and provide the resources to allow this church to grow... It's not going to grow. The underlying reason this all worked is because of the generosity of the early believers. And do not discount that. It was a significant event in the early church. These people got in touch not only with Jesus, but they laid it all out. And they were willing to give up what they needed to give up sacrificially to see the greater movement of the gospel. 
So let's pray and see where you're at. So, Jesus, we, we just call on you. Holy Spirit, God, I don't know where you're leading us. I don't know what's going on, but I believe, I really believe that this passage is talking to us. It is talking directly to us. It's not some history lesson. This is a message that you want us to hear. Will we respond? And Lord, I want to say yes. I want to respond. And I want to encourage you to say yes as well. Yes to the Lord. And, and, and you may not know what, how or when or what it looks like, but you're saying yes, God, I want in on that. I want in on something exciting like that. And Father, I pray you'd raise up an army of servants. I really do. I pray in the name of Jesus that I'm looking over an army of servants. And as needs arise, we're going to step in. And that's the kind of people we're going to be. Amen. Amen. Thank you.